This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, October 27th. On the pod today, Israel says Hamas will feel its wrath tonight as explosions in Gaza light up the night sky. We'll get the latest from our reporter in Jerusalem, and we'll hear from Doctors Without Borders about the impact on aid operations on the ground. Plus, with reports the internet and communication services are down in Gaza, we speak to a Canadian who's lost contact with her family stuck there. And politicians in Atlantic Canada are happy with the federal government's carbon tax changes, but they're sparking backlash in other parts of the country. We'll dig into the politics of pollution pricing with a Liberal MP, and our panel will take the pulse of this political week. We begin in Israel, where thousands of troops amassed at the border appear closer to launching an invasion of Gaza. The CBC's Margaret Evans joins us now from Israel. So, Margaret, things in this conflict are changing minute by minute. What's the latest happening there? Well, David, there was uh, earlier uh, a really intense bombardment of the Gaza Strip just in the last uh, 30 to 40 minutes, it seems to have slowed down a little bit, but it was very sustained all evening long. We're in Jerusalem. We could hear warplanes going overhead. And shortly after the first initial kind of heavy bombardment that some people have said has been the heaviest that that has been witnessed since the beginning of this 21-day war against Hamas by Israel, which has been mainly airstrikes so far, uh, that the... Uh, that the IDF came out, the Israel Def- Defense Forces, and said, uh, "We this is happening, and what is also happening is we're going to be expanding our ground operations. There have been a f- few ground incursions earlier this week. Some We've seen a uh, video that uh, the Defense Forces, uh, the Israeli Defense Forces, released of tanks going in, bulldozers saying they're preparing the ground for a ground invasion. Um, this seems to be something larger than that. That certainly is the implication. Um, the heavy airstrikes earlier are said or believed to have been uh, to have knocked out internet and telephone or telecoms communications. It's possible they could have been cut deliberately, but what we are hearing from Paltel, which is the main provider um, of those communications in the Gaza Strip, has said that they were knocked out. Um, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the World Health Organization, have said they can't get in touch with their teams, with their operations centers, because communications are down, and that, of course, is going to complicate humanitarian aid uh, efforts tonight, although it is in the middle of the night here so presumably people are trying to hunker down and get some sleep it's not sure that you know that's going to be an easy task tonight certainly people will be very very frightened by the blackout by being cut off from any sense of connection to the outside world not being able to understand what's happening but hearing those loud booms you know people in Ashkelon can hear the intensity of those strikes in Israel uh, happening in Gaza so it gives you a sense of what people actually under them are going to be happening or going to be feeling and of course people outside uh, relatives are going to be extremely concerned not to be able to be in contact one of the other things that the Israel Defense Forces spokesman uh, said earlier today this is something that people are kind of linking together is they made a point of saying uh, that they know they have intelligence 
proof, they say, that uh, Hamas uh, has been using one of the main hospitals, Shifa Hospital in Gaza City, to, uh, to house its operation centers in underground tunnels. Um, they've you know, released some drawings of that, but there's no way really of confirming that. But that was linked to... The, the, the people are linking that to this later operation. There was also another uh, call from the Israel Defense Forces for people still in northern Gaza, and that's where the heaviest strikes have been so far tonight, the north and the center, this call for them to move to the south, even though we've seen southern Gaza bombed consistently uh, through these past two to three weeks. So, Margaret, obviously a, a lot happening there uh, on the military campaign uh, around Gaza. All this week, though, there have been talks about trying to release hostages, the promises of maybe movement there. Have we learned anything new about the more than 200 hostages being held by Hamas? Not thus far. And, of course, the, those families are going to be feeling uh, the same anxiety that families of, of Palestinians in Gaza are as this intensification takes place. As you mentioned, there's, there have been rumors for a few days now of a potential big hostage deal in the works, perhaps involving 50 people, something like that. So Qatar's prime minister came out and said pro things were progressing. Um, the Israeli Defense Forces spokesman today said quite clearly in his briefing, don't believe rumors. That was a message to the Israeli people. He talked about Hamas being quite capable or likely to engage in psychological warfare. Um, there is no doubt that the anxiety that Israelis feel, many Israelis, especially the families, feel is influencing uh, decision-making. It's complicated matters for Israel's military goals. Um, it's led to a lot of speculation about why that this may potentially be why um, that ground invasion that Israel has been promising hasn't taken place until now. And there was a really interesting poll in one of the main Israeli newspapers today suggesting that 49% of Israelis would like to see uh, the government, the military, hold off mm. on a ground invasion right now compared to 29% in favor of going ahead full on. That compares to a poll just over a week ago which showed 65% of Israelis then wanted to see that ground invasion take place. And that poll was taken just before those first two hostages were released, the American mother and daughter, and then another two a few days later, two elderly Israeli women. So it certainly is front and center, but there are other, um, there are other theories as well. Some are that the Israel Defense Forces aren't quite ready. Um, that they want to be uh, very, very sure. We're talking about really complicated urban warfare. Will the Israeli public be able to stomach high levels of is Israeli soldiers being killed? And also the end game. What happens when you've got hundreds of thousands of people pushed to the southern part of Gaza Strip while a, a ground invasion is going on in the, in the north? How is that sustainable? Because the Israelis have said this will be a long campaign, if not weeks, months. Margaret, thank you so much. That's the CBC's Margaret Evans in Jerusalem. Well, as attacks intensify in Gaza, concerns grow for the people living there. 
Azia Mathkor is a Canadian citizen stuck in Gaza. She's there with her husband, two young children, parents, and other extended family. Her sister-in-law, May Latif, fears for her family's safety after all communications between them was cut off earlier today. May Latif joins us now. Um, May, uh, ha- it's been hours since apparently the communications went down. Have you been able to reach Azia or any other family members inside Gaza since then? No. Uh, the last time we spoke to Asia was uh, around 11 a.m. Uh, before communication cut out. She informed me, you know, just simply she wrote, I'm okay, and that her and her daughter were sick. They were vomiting nonstop. Um, and approximately 45 minutes or so after that, people we know, Canadians who live here, who have family in Gaza, uh, started to reach out and ask us if we've heard from family members saying that, you know, the phones are completely off. Um, and that's when we started to, you know, make our phone calls and trying to look for news uh, because it, the Palestinian news was also shut down. We found news um, in nearby countries like Egypt that notified us that uh, phone lines and internet lines were completely severed. So when you uh, had contact with her, I I know she said she was okay, but okay, I guess, means different things in Gaza right now than okay means, you know, here in Ottawa, for example. So what is her condition? Like, how how are they finding shelter and food and and refuge right now? So her okay is just to kind of make us feel a little bit better. She knows that we're also sitting on edge. Um, You know, she was able to send us some a few voice notes. It was hard to speak over the phone. Uh, they're about 20 seconds each, just telling us a little bit about what they're eating. We know that they're eating canned food at the moment. Um, no running water still. So they have a supply of some water that comes in buckets. We don't know if it's clean. So, you know, the situation was pretty bad when we spoke in the morning. Uh, we keep we keep trying to get their hopes up high. But now... You know, this was this. You know, this this ex, this experience has been really eye-opening. Just seeing uh, humans being able to survive with little to nothing. Um, but I can't imagine right now what they're experiencing completely in the dark. Mm. We also don't know if they're okay. So I'm sitting on edge right now as I speak to you. They are in the Rafah area, uh, which we know didn't experience as heavy as a bombardment as uh, the central Gaza North area. But there still was bombs that that went there, and we just we don't know how they are right now. Uh, we, we've got a photo of, of um, Azia and her family on the screen, or we just have one up there. There's a little boy and a little girl there. How, how old are they, and, and what are their names? So the little girl, her name is Salma, and she's two, and the boy is five, and his name is Salam. And actually, both their names mean peace in Arabic, um, which is very... It's very interesting to say that right now. But, um, you know, the two-year-old, I know she was very sick. She's been vomiting. Uh, They don't have access to diapers. I'm not quite sure what they do in that situation. We don't have enough. um, Well, we didn't have enough access to ask them these type of questions. And now we have no access to them whatsoever. So they're trying to make do. She tells me her children try to play. They try to kind of make it work. But... Um, you're living this, right? Uh, you know, di- yeah. minute by minute. Um, what what has it been like for you today? Like, I, I guess knowing is hard. I I I, I have obviously have nobody in Gaza, but I feel like not knowing 
must be worse. Uh, I mean, how is it right now watching the news about the escalation and, and advisors to the Prime Minister Netanyahu saying Hamas will feel our wrath tonight? I, I mean, how are you feeling with all of this happening right now? Well, when I hear such words, all I can think of is Palestinians are going to feel the wrath and are feeling the wrath, right? It's a very highly dense uh, area, and it's quite small. Um, so you can't differentiate Hamas experiencing the wrath from the population because the bombs are going everywhere. Uh, how am I feeling? Um, there's terror running through my body. I'm trying to stay as stable as possible. And I'm trying to keep hope, hoping that within the next couple hours, something's going to change. We're going to hear from them. But we also know that there's a possible land invasion going to happen soon. So I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I'm lost for words. We're all on edge. When we were communicating with them, it helps us feel like we're doing something, like we're supporting them, almost like we're there with them, although it's uncomparable to what their experience is, but we can share some of their pain. Right now, they're in the dark, and we're in the dark about what they're experiencing, and so, you know, we keep getting images, and I know that I'm experiencing, like, possibilities and trying to kind of just shove it down and um, hoping for a, a ceasefire soon. I think that's the only that's the only way out of this. Uh, they're running out of resources right now. Medical supplies are really low. Uh, Asya had informed me actually something quite horrifying yesterday that the street actually smelled like death because they can't remove all the bodies. A lot of the bodies are under the rubble. So they're already in a horrifying apocalyptic type of environment to now be completely severed from the rest of the world is, is very scary because we were witnessing mass murder while the cameras were rolling. And I just can't imagine what could be happening right now with all communication severed. I just, I, I have, I have no words to even, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I know the government of Canada has said it's, it's trying to find ways to get people like Asia uh, out. Uh, no. It, it's. It, I, I. I don't see any sign of movement on that. Have you? Yeah, do you know if there's any. Go ahead. Go. Go ahead. Sorry, to, but you know what? We haven't heard anything for mm. over a week now. Um, nothing. No emails. We were getting emails at the beginning. Uh, there was days that were provided of possible um, removal of Canadians. It has been completely silent, um, and we don't even hear about it in the news. So not only are we not getting responses, we call global affairs. They seem to kind of just add fluffy words, distract us, say someone will be in contact. I think they did a, a almost like a wellness email, just checking in. Um, that's it. So there has been no movement and there has been no call for ceasefire from our own Canadian officials. I know some MPs, um, approximately 30 signed for uh, requesting, demanding a ceasefire, but we haven't heard anything from our prime minister. And I mean, this level of violence needs to be condemned from everybody. Yeah, uh, Canada's position is uh, humanitarian pauses to allow aid in and, and civilians out. Not a full ceasefire, um, but uh, there's no movement on that either, it seems. that uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, It's not gaining the traction that I know you and other people are hoping for. Uh, May, I, I hope you hear from her soon. I hope they're all okay. Uh, and please, uh, please get in touch with us if you get any kind of an update, okay? 
Thank you for having me on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story with us. We appreciate it. That's May Latif. Thank you. Multiple reports of all communications being cut off in the Gaza Strip are emerging. This, as the Israel Defense Forces say they are ramping up for a larger ground attack. Joseph Beliveau is the executive director of Doctors Without Borders here in Canada. He's got several teams operating in Gaza, and he joins us now from Vancouver. Joseph, it's good to speak with you again. Yeah, hi again, David. Thanks for having me. You've heard there uh, all the reports of people losing all communications with their friends and family in Gaza. Have you been able to have contact with your team teams operating inside there? Yeah, I can confirm that uh, since yesterday we have lost contact with uh, with a number of colleagues. It was already extremely difficult uh, maintaining good communications with uh, MSF or Doctors Without Borders colleagues in Gaza, and, and, and it, it has definitely dropped off. And these are colleagues you know, who have already been now for three weeks straight working under extreme uh, duress, still telling us that they can't sleep at night because uh, the bombs are still dropping in the neighborhoods and on or near the hospital grounds uh, still uh, they're working on hospital grounds that we've, you know, we've, we've heard now many times, and, and I've also described uh, uh, many times now just how crippled the health system is. And, you know, maybe just to illustrate uh, the, the, the point, um, a, a surgeon colleague was just describing how a nine-year-old boy, his 13-year-old sister and mother uh, came into the hospital. This is just a few days ago. And uh, the, the, the operating theaters are completely overwhelmed there with with lines of you know hundreds of people waiting for surgical interventions this boy needed an amputation he had a wound lower leg uh, wound needed an amputation there and then so they did it on the floor uh with with limited sedation with improper tools and uh, my surgeon colleague was describing looking at the 13 year old daughter who also needed a surgical intervention who was up next and just seeing that that terror and, and horror these these are the conditions that, that my colleagues are working in, and now we have, e- indeed, even less contact with them. Okay, uh, that, that's, uh, that's gruesome, uh, what, what you uh, described there, um, that happening to kids. I, I just, sorry, I, I wasn't expecting to hear that, and it's, it's kind of just hit me. I, I was wondering the, the, the complete loss uh, of communications at this point on, on top of the, the lack of medical equipment and, and the difficulties that were there. I mean, how does this affect your operations, not knowing where people are, not knowing what they need, not knowing uh, how to reach them? Honestly, it, it, it has already had, had already become uh, extremely difficult to coordinate humanitarian responses. So normally, if you've got a, a crisis anywhere near this kind of scale, uh, you know, you're, you're sending in massive amounts of supplies daily, uh, you're saying reinforcements, new people to uh, to mount uh, this, uh, you know, the, the response and sort of coordinating activities. Uh, really, what's been happening is our 300 plus MSF Doctors Without Borders colleagues have been having to make individual choices themselves uh, about what to do and where to go. Many choosing very rightfully to go and be with their families, maybe try to find a little bit more uh, safety down in the southern part of Gaza. Uh, many also choosing and risking their lives in the choice to stay uh, in the northern part, in the hospitals, continue to do uh, all they can, but they're exhausted, they're terrified, they never know when the next airstrike is going to occur, and they're just, you know, every minute, really, they're faced with this kind of impossible dilemma, and now we have even less contact, indeed. 
We, we, we speak to people like you, Oxfam, UNICEF, um, you know, the World Health Organization, the World Food Program, and they all tell a consistent story of a humanitarian crisis inside Gaza. We've heard from Israeli government officials, diplomats at the United Nations today, the representative for Israel at the UN, said flat out there is no humanitarian crisis inside Gaza, that the, the shortages in there are, are being caused by Hamas. How do we square what you're saying what your people are telling you and this constellation of aid groups is saying with what um, the Israeli ambassador to the UN said today. It's very difficult to, to square that. Honestly, what, what we can continue to say and, and have been saying is, is, is just describing the reality as we see it, as my colleagues are experiencing it, as the patients in the, in the hospitals are experiencing it. And the, the bombing, um, you know, the Israeli Air Force themselves said within the first uh, six days of this conflict that they dropped 6,000 bombs. What we can say, and how many more since then, we know the bombing has been nearly incessant. And, and so what, what we can say is that many of, many of those strikes have hit uh, the homes or very near the homes of MSF colleagues. They've said this directly to us. Uh, and that, uh, according to the World Health Organization, they, they say 72 airstrikes have hit medical facilities uh, between October 7th and October 23rd. We can't confirm that number. Mm -hmm. What we can confirm is that many of the hospitals that we are working in and, and we are supporting uh, have been hit and continue to be hit uh, by, by airstrikes. And then, and then the siege uh, on top of all this. So we, we also can absolutely confirm MSF, uh, we, we had medical stocks uh, about two months worth uh, when this uh, this round of conflict uh, kicked off. Uh, we've either used it all or we've donated it to uh, medical colleagues in the hospitals. And uh, of the, the very few trucks that have crossed now from uh, from Rafa into the southern southern Gaza, none of those medical supplies, it, it, it very few relative mm. to the needs, but none of those supplies have reached the hospitals uh, in the north yet. Uh, so... Hospitals are, are shutting down for lack of fuel or services are shutting down. And, and we're talking about incubators for neonates that can't work without electricity, uh, um, uh, cancer patients that can't be treated, uh, radiology, uh, x-rays that we can't do, uh, dialysis machines. Uh, and, and of course, uh, you, you can not really do surgical interventions yeah. effectively without electricity either. So people are dying because of the siege and the lack of medical supplies and fuel. And water. We could, we could talk about water, too. People right. are drinking salinated water. Right. No, it, it, yes, and, and waterborne diseases and, and people don't have enough to clean themselves, so, so sanitation uh, becomes an issue as well. Look, look you, you mentioned in that answer uh, that hospitals and health facilities inside Gaza have been struck. Uh, we've spoken to the Israel Defense Forces on the show, and they say emphatically they do not deliberately target uh, health facilities because it's, it, it, it's, it's illegal under the Geneva Convention and humanitarian law and the laws of war. But today there was a, a presentation done in, in Israel and a presentation put on social media where they, they talked about Al-Shifa Hospital, which is the largest hospital in Gaza, where a lot of people are taking shelter. And the, the, the Israel Defense Forces essentially spelled out intelligence, they say they have, that proves, in their view, that Hamas is using this hospital, which is not surprising given Hamas's actions in the past, as a command and control center, that they're, they're based in there, and they use it to direct missile strikes from Gaza into Israel. What goes through your mind when the IDF, and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu tweeted all of this as well, is sort of laying out to the world uh, information that Hamas is using a hospital in this way? 
I find that extremely disturbing because what that seems to imply is that there they may see some legitimacy then in launching an airstrike on on a hospital and this this is the largest hospital in northern gaza uh msf staff are in this hospital they they have described tens of thousands of of, of civilians who have sought shelter in the hospital grounds of shifa hospital uh because because their neighborhoods are so un- unsafe, because they think that a hospital is going to be uh, a, a little bit more more safe, even knowing that there have been airstrikes uh, on hospitals. This is a place where there are hundreds of patients lined up in the in the corridors and, and wherever they can be, so many of them waiting for surgical interventions, so many of them children, more than half, according to my colleagues, of the injured and the sick in, the, in, in, in this and other hospitals are children or, or women. Um, you know, and I hear something like that, and I, and I think, does that mean that this this is going to result in a, in a bombing of this facility? Which I, I just I, I just find that almost impossible to get my head around and and, and make sense of. And uh, that's that's prob- that's why MSF just as of today uh, we have decided to do something we don't normally do, and we're calling for a full ceasefire. Uh, we know that we're not the only ones calling for a ceasefire, mm. but we as, as Doctors Without Borders, MSF, we don't normally do that. What we normally do is call for respect within war for non-combatants, uh, for c- civilian in- infrastructure, especially respect for hospitals. In this case, we've seen the pattern has been so persistent and indiscriminate in hitting civilian neighborhoods, hospitals, uh, uh, children and, and women uh, you're, you, you had somebody on the show just, just previously describing the, the, the smells. The morgues in the hospital are, are, are overflowing. And, and with a lot of small bodies, a lot of children's bodies, we don't normally call for a ceasefire in this circumstances, in this moment. We are also going out and calling for a, a full ceasefire here. Joseph Beliveau, Executive Director of Doctors Without Borders Canada. We always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, David. The federal government has announced a three-year exemption for home heating oil from the carbon tax. This comes after Atlantic premiers and Atlantic Liberal MPs have been calling for relief on the federal carbon price. One of those premiers says it shows the Prime Minister listened. It deserves uh, recognition that the Prime Minister listened. Uh, We've been saying this for 18 months to two years, privately, in letters, publicly. Um, So I do think that it shows that uh, he listened. Uh, I don't think the federal environment minister did. I think that the Prime Minister listened. He understands that the acute issue with the carbon taxes is, is likely home heat going into the winter. Now, the Federal Environment Minister, Stephen Gubot, was asked about those comments, but said he didn't know what Premier Fury was referring to. Of course, as Environment Minister, my preference would be to to, to, to not have to make those accommodations, but but we live in a world where some people are challenged with affordability right now, and and we have to be able to course correct on, on, on some of our measures while keeping the overall system intact. Now, many Liberal MPs, especially from Atlantic Canada, pushed for a rural carbon tax carve-out at the Liberal National Caucus retreat in September. One of those MPs joins us now. Ken McDonald is the Liberal MP for the riding of Avalon in Newfoundland and Labrador. Ken McDonald, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. The last time we spoke, you told me that people across Newfoundland and Labrador were losing faith in the Liberal government. Does yesterday's announcement restore that faith in your view? 
I think it goes a long way to restoring some of that fate back again. Only a long way, but not all the way? Uh, what's the reaction? What's your sense of it right now? Uh, I don't know. I think people, some people are going to be skeptical, uh, I think, and uh, I've heard a few today who are wondering, like, okay, so is this for real? Is it going to last? Is it just to, as somebody said earlier, to change the polling situation that we see go taking on across the country? So, but uh, I think it's for real, and uh, I think it's here to stay, hopefully. People are skeptical. Is that because they think this is a, uh, a political decision because of the political circumstances? I mean, certainly politics does play a role in this, right, Mr. McDonald? Oh, everything we do, politics plays a role in it as a politician. You know that. Right. So uh, what do you need to do to convince people that this is a serious effort to, to deal with their affordability concerns and, and help with this transition? Do you think there will be an appetite for the heat pump plan the prime minister rolled out? And do you think, do you think the industry there has the capacity to deliver on it at the scale that will be required in the three years that's available for it? Yeah, and I think that's going to be an issue uh, to get people out in rural communities able to install these, people call them heat, heat pumps, I call them mini splits. Uh, because most houses are not designed to have what you call an actual heat pump. Mm -hmm. So it's the, the mini splits that people, I have one in my home and I, I, I know a lot of people around me do as well. But uh, I think the availability of those are going to be an issue. Uh, getting the manpower out there to install them are going to be an issue. So hopefully it's not too big of an issue and we can get this moving along quickly and smoothly. You said politics is at the heart of everything you do. Uh, Premier Fury, uh, Premier Andrew Fury of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, mentioned today that, in his view, it's the Prime Minister who got this done, not the Environment Minister. You were critical of Stephen Gibault when you were on the show last time. What's your understanding? Is this the, the Prime Minister overruling his minister to make this happen for the Atlantic region? I think the Prime Minister made this happen with the help of the Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland over the objections, do you believe, of the Environment Minister, or do you think everybody's actually on board with this? No, I would think that Minister Gibault still wouldn't be on board with this. Do you think that's going to be a problem for your government going forward? Um, I don't think so. I, I, I think, you know, when you sit around a cabinet table, you've got to have wins and losses, I guess, when you're trying to push something forward. So I think that's all part of the, of the political happenings that take place at the cabinet table. And I hope, it, you know, I hope everybody stays focused on what they're doing and trying to get this out the door as fast as possible so people can see the benefits from it. Uh, there's been some, some discussion after our last interview and after your votes against the government on this in Parliament, siding with the Conservatives uh, on scrapping carbon tax as a policy, that maybe you might cross the floor or maybe you might not run again. Are you going to stay as a Liberal and will you stay on the ballot? What is your political future? Right now, I'm a liberal, and my intent is to stay a liberal. Right now, I, should I, I? People right are going to seize on that. I, I mean, does that mean you're constantly reassessing it? Or, I mean, where are you? No, I, I'm. I'm quite happy where I'm to, uh, and this week uh, reconfirmed that because of the fact uh, I was listened to, and other caucus members were listened to to get this where it is today. And uh, I think in a lot of situations in, in the past, uh, government and government leadership don't always listen to a, a, a backbench MP. But uh, on this one they did, and uh, they listened to the voices they were hearing. 
Do you, do you think you're going to run again, uh, Mr. McDonald, in the next election? There's also some buzz you might be looking at a jump to provincial politics. I, I, I don't know what your plans are, but people are talking about them a lot since uh, we last spoke. Yeah, I've heard a lot of it. People whispering in my ear, even in Ottawa, like, we hear you're going to go provincial, we hear you're looking at sitting across the floor, and listen, to be honest with you, I haven't decided what I'm doing. I do like what's happening in the province. I, I may consider doing that. I haven't said yes or no to it. I've been asked. I've been asked across the floor. I've been uh, a Liberal MP for eight years, and uh, there's nothing wrong with doing another four or five years either. So uh, I do enjoy what I'm doing. But uh, I hope to be involved in politics at one level or another down the road. You've been asked across the floor. What can you tell me about that? Who asked you to uh, come to leave the Liberals and come join them? Would, would it have been the Conservatives? Was this Cliff Small? Was it someone in the leadership? What's the story there? Yeah, Clifford, Clifford Small has reached out to me. And uh, I, I've heard from a couple of others as well who uh, probably would rather remain nameless. Okay, Clifford Small is the Conservative Member of Parliament from Newfoundland. He, he's the lone uh, Conservative uh, elected from Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, you told Cliff Small no. Uh, what did you tell him when he asked? I told him I'm a long ways from that right now. Okay. Uh, I, I wonder, you say people are positive, largely, on this announcement uh, where you are back home, uh, though with some skepticism. You've probably seen the reaction, I'm sure, from across the country. Western Canadian premiers and, and politicians upset that there's an exemption for oil but not for natural gas. Ontario is upset by this. People are saying the climate plan is now being implemented in different ways in different parts of the country because of this carve out for home heating oil, because even though it's national, it's really an Atlantic Canada issue. Are, are you worried that this could, re could create political problems for the government on other fronts because of the, the help they've given to the people in Atlantic Canada right now? No, I don't think so, because I think the, the rest of the country, especially in the bigger downtown centers of uh, bigger cities, they're more in tune with trying to do something to correct the environment, more so probably than people are in rural communities across the country. Just because, what, they have more capacity and more options? It, it's, it's a different thing? I mean, what, what, what do you base that on? Yeah, they, they have more capacity, more options, whereas in rural, you know, if, if somebody has a all-fired furnace in their house, they haven't got a lot of other options. Mm -hmm. uh, houses were probably not designed for anything else. So it makes it a little bit harder on people who live in rural, and more particularly for me in my riding, uh, I've got a rural riding and people, uh, their homes are not uh, designed for a heat pump as such. So uh, this announcement goes a long way to help them get to where government wants people to get off of oil. Okay. Ken McDonald, Liberal MP for the riding of Avalon. Uh, thanks for joining us from St. John's today. Thanks, David. The Liberal government spent this week grappling with two distinct political issues, each of which exposed some fault lines inside their caucus. The disagreements over Canada's approach to the Israel-Hamas war led to some tense moments at this week's caucus meeting after two dozen Liberal MPs released a letter calling for a ceasefire, a move that blindsided some of their colleagues. And just yesterday, the Prime Minister announced a change in his carbon tax plan to calm the frustration of Atlantic MPs facing voters angry about the high cost of home heating oil. 
We're going to check the pulse of federal politics this week. I'm joined by Susan Delacourt, national columnist of the Toronto Star, who's filling in for Melanie Richet tonight. Greg McEachern is a former Liberal ministerial staffer and now with, K with Can Strategies. Fred Delory, former Conservative campaign manager and partner at North Star Public Affairs. Hello, gang. Uh, with, with Melanie away on vacation, I didn't want another political staffer. I wanted reinforcements from the journalistic world to handle you two. Two on two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I needed, you know, I'm, it's been a busy week. Uh, Why am look, I scared? I, I, I want to start... I, I want to start uh, with the issue on, on what happened yesterday at 4 o'clock Ottawa time, the, the, the walking back of, of the tax on home heating oil. And I want to show you some tape from two Liberal MPs with two very different opinions. And just take a listen to this. Is this a political decision, what you made yesterday? No, I, I would say it's a pragmatic decision. Uh, to, to, to adjust one element of the, of the carbon pricing system. Uh, for those people f where alternatives are, are, are difficult to implement. People are skeptical. Is that because they think this is a, uh, a political decision because of the political circumstances? I mean, certainly politics does play a role in this, right, Mr. McDonald? Oh, everything we do, politics plays a role in it as a politician. You know that. <laughs> So, so, Greg, I spent last night getting yelled at by liberals on Twitter that this had nothing to do with politics. A liberal tells me it has a lot to do with politics. So what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I think of that phrase from Casablanca, like, I can't believe there's gambling in this casino. Yeah, exactly. I can't believe there's politics in this politics. It's absolutely political. I'm, I'm a bit relieved. I'm also, you know, as, a, as an Atlantic Canadian, I'm a bit annoyed. The last time, it's been a couple of weeks since we've talked. The last time yep. we, we talked, we talked about these exact topics. Um, you mentioned earlier the lack of senior advice in the PMO from Atlantic Canada and how they've been slow to respond to things. The other thing I remember talking to you about is um, the fact that people don't seem to understand, and there's been a lot of smart people, some of them that are sometimes even on this show, that realize that people still burn oil in Nova Scotia. I remember, yep. you know, after leaving university, living paycheck to paycheck, going through a really cold winter where oil prices were really high and trying to figure out, you know, you're perhaps even buying $100 of oil at a, at a time. So I, I get this. I get this pain. It pains me how long it took to kind of absorb this information. Um, the other thing that I'd, I'd say on the communication side is you need good policy that's easily uh, commun communicated. But there are other programs that are in existence right now. Greener Homes is one. The oil to heat pumps has been around since November of 22. Why do people not know about that? People are saying, well, what about, um, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm on, if I heat through pro propane? Well, there are programs for that, but no one seems to know. So I, I hope there's a bit of a, a learning here about the bigger, th this could have been headed off a lot sooner. Fred, uh, you know, if people can't see it at home, Greg and Fred have their X rings on, so they're both uh, <laughs> proud Atlantic Canadians and Nova Scotians. Uh, obviously, this was an issue uh, for the Liberals in Atlantic Canada. I don't know if this is enough or, or soon enough to put a floor under them in the region, but how do you think this plays uh, politically out there and why they had to do it? Yeah, well, as Greg mentioned, uh, uh, using oil is a major way that people heat their homes. Uh, so the carbon tax has negatively impacted Atlantic Canadians more so than other uh, Canadians. Uh, at the end of the day, we're seeing the polling numbers, and this is a liberal fortress. In 2015, they won every single seat in Atlantic Canada, all 32, and they're all at risk now, or the vast majority of them are. If those, uh, those seats are enough to shift who's in government, 
so the liberals are bleeding there big time, uh, and a big part of this is obviously carbon tax is one of those issues where when the uh, the environment is a top issue, it's a winning issue for the liberals. When inflation and out of control prices are uh, the top issue of the day, it's a winning issue for the conservatives. Right, and that's where we are right now, and that's why the conservatives are really benefiting from this. They have the axe the axe the tax tour. Uh, that Poliev has been doing. He's, he's now. You said they did this announcement at four o'clock yesterday, an hour before he was doing his first big event in uh, in Atlantic Canada in, in Windsor, Nova Scotia. In Windsor, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, look, this is uh, is this enough to stop the bleeding for the Liberals? We'll have to see. And how they communicate this as well, just doing one announcement and announcing yeah. it that way. They have to be pushing this message out. Uh, and I don't know if we're going to be seeing those checks in the mail uh, like we used to see back in the day, uh, or how that's going to work. Those big yeah. giant ones, or, or, or the, the heat pumps on the houses. But you know. And Susan, this is happening as Pierre Polyev is in St. John's uh, right now at the Delta Hotel, having a rally there. But it was interesting in the conversations with Ken McDonald earlier, I said, how do you think this got done? He goes, it was the prime minister and the deputy prime minister. I said, do you think it was the environment minister? He's like, nope. Uh, He was critical of Stephen Gabot. He's not giving him a lot of credit here right now. You know, and we picked that up from Premier Fury as well, too, Mm -hmm. who said uh, as well, was it today? He's criticized Gabot a lot, so today he definitely said... He said the same thing. Um, so it strikes me that this government, for first two terms, it was mostly reacting to external events. Right. Um, you know, whether it was Trump or Ford or pandemic. But the last year, it's been reacting to internal trouble. And this is a, a really interesting development that we saw in London at the caucus there, the stress on affordability, the, the, the calls are coming from inside the house, yeah. in other words. So... Um, and it's not a good look for them. It's not a good look. Well, you know, Greg, it was, a, I don't know, I think it was about three weeks ago, Ken McDonald sat right there and, and did the interview that uh, Pierre Polyev clipped and put on his Twitter feed, uh, you know, where he said uh, people Thank are losing faith. Thank you, CBC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, uh, people are losing faith in, in the Liberal government, you know, across Newfoundland and Labrador. He doesn't know what he's going to do in his political future. I thought for the life of me he was going to get kicked out of caucus, he was going to be punished in some way. Not only did none of that happen, he got what he wanted. Well, and I said he would not get punished because, first of all, it's minority government. Let's just do the sure. math. Yeah, yeah. And they want they don't want to make a hero out of him. There probably will be some repercussions, but I'm glad you asked him about running provincially because as soon as we left the set last week, I got a text from a, a faithful viewer who said, I think he's running provincially. And tonight you asked him, and I noticed he didn't say no. You no, know, he said it's on the table. He also said he was asked, uh, Fred, by Cliff Small, who's the conservative MP uh, for Newfoundland, a guy beat Scott Sims last time, uh, to cross the floor, and he said, no, and so it just shows you for how volatile the Atlantic situation is, and, and the potential for an even bigger caucus management challenge uh, for the Liberals out of this. Yeah, well, at the same time, I like him as a Liberal MP. He's been very helpful. <laughs> cause, so I don't know why we're trying to poach him. But, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, this is uh, we have MPs like that speaking out like this, and we have two MPs, one a cabinet minister. Uh, saying very different messages you have a huge communications problem uh and this is uh this is a government that's getting long in the tooth they've been around a long time and this is this feels like end of days for for a political government so susan uh, you know this now they now have a national climate policy a carbon price that is being applied asymmetrically and and you can make good arguments because of the unique circumstances of atlantic canada but now you see people making those arguments uh, the north is affected by this uh, as well i should acknowledge that it's got an email from a viewer saying we didn't mention the north and i know people burn oil, uh, but Western Canada, uh, Central Canada, Doug Ford, I, I mean, this could it's, have consequences. We may be in for a time of boutique carbon taxes, where yeah. all of a sudden 
uh, it's not going to be as uh, universal. We haven't even talked, though, about, and maybe I should because Melanie's not here, about uh, what this does on the left. You know, the liberals have a progressive left to hold up in the next election campaign. That's that's how they're planning. It's not a secret. They were planning to conduct the next election campaign as a stark choice between a progressive left and uh, and a conservative, ultra-conservative right. And what's the NDP going to say about this? You know, we saw Catherine McKenna, the former environment minister, on Twitter saying her heart was broken. I, this was a, a signature achievement for this government as well. So I think, you know, that right now they're watching that flank but there's the bigger picture to talk about, too. Should Catherine McKenna's heart be broken when we're talking about 3% of Canadian homes, mostly people who are older with lower-valued properties uh, and lower incomes? Is that really a heartbreaking situation? I no. think she's talking about the fact that, and she injected a lot of it in there, the symbolism of it. You know, right. that, that's, um, you know, this was a symbolic thing for this government, and um, it, it, it definitely feels like a retreat. Yeah, it also, though, like, let's be realistic about the events that have changed. We've had a pandemic. We've had, you know, I, I heard Ken McDonald say he was concerned about whether or not heat pumps would even be available because we it's still be a huge problem. We still have supply chain issues. But if the goal is to move people off oil, a heat pump program does do that. And I will tell you, I personally have one. I replaced an ancient air conditioning that was noisy and inefficient. My, I can see the the change in my hydro bill, but I also know when I moved here from Halifax to Ottawa, in terms of natural gas, heat was included in most of the rentals. You will not yeah. find that in Nova Scotia because it's often oil or electricity. Yeah, I had a February oil bill on, on a three-bedroom, 2,000-square-foot house in St. John's that was 800 bucks uh, one year. And that was like 15 years ago. <laughs> so that just gives you an idea of uh, how bad it can be, right? Uh, so anyway, the other caucus management issue this week, Fred, uh, uh, played up more in the Liberals. The Conservatives are completely on side with Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you saw them support humanitarian pauses after, uh, you know, only after hostages were released and foreign nationals, but uh, not a ceasefire. The Liberals have had a more difficult issue because the fault lines on this issue in Canada kind of run right through their caucus. Right. What are you, what's your sense of how they're able to manage that by letting the conversation go uh, to this point? Well, for the conservatives, it's it's an easy uh, issue yeah. where we're very pro-Israel, always happens. One no, of the, most the liberals, pro- how they're... Oh, I know, and I'll get to that. Yeah, okay, <laughs> I just want to reiterate <laughs> yeah. the, the link that the Conservative Party has had with, with Israel. They're one of the strongest uh, supporters of Israel in the world, mm-hmm. the Conservative Party of Canada is. The liberals uh, have a different uh, have, have a different makeup and, and a very different caucus. Uh, if you look at a lot of their MPs, they have a, they have a more diverse caucus. So you're going to have diverse opinions in there that are going to be very different. And how they manage that, uh, it's, it's going to be hard, but we're seeing the, the polling on this that's coming out, uh, it, you know, the caucus is very similar to what we're seeing as an actual national polling yeah. on this issue. So it's not that far off. Yeah, it's not just a ver- diverse caucus, uh, Susan, it's diverse ridings, right? Some of the urban centers that they represent, big Jewish populations, big Muslim, big Arab populations. Yeah, yeah I went, in, um, my original hometown is Milton, Ontario. Right. Ontario represent here. <laughs> Western Canada, we call it. Yeah. And Adam, Va- Adam Vancouverden from yeah. Milton was one of the signatories to the ceasefire. No, and I went and looked up um, what the stats are in Milton, and it was a few hundred people of Jewish persuasion and 30,000 Muslims in my old right. hometown. Uh, so that tells you a little bit about what's influencing things on the ground there as well, too. I will say... I did a bit of digging yesterday about um, what happened in the meeting with the leaders. You know, yes. when they yeah. 
all got together, and I was heartened by it a bit. It sounds like there were grown-ups in the room, you know, that um, they were all concerned about this. They were all really concerned about how this is playing out on the ground. And I saw a question period after, and you didn't see it turning into yeah, a thing then. but there hasn't been a lot on this in question no, period. And it's I'm been glad. about affordability, <laughs> but, like, not even, like, uh, can you give us an update on efforts to get citizens out of Gaza no, and all no. these, uh, like, even sort of informational questions, it's kind of been low it sounds. Oh, it, it sounds like they, they had uh, a long time with Jody Thomas, the National mm-hmm. Security Advisor, who went point by point. She didn't say much more than they've said in public, but right. but they got to ask their questions, and that's probably how it should be handled, but... Right. So, so, Greg, the issue, as I heard it inside the, the Liberal caucus this week, uh, the letter that was released last Friday to the Prime Minister that about two dozen Liberals signed, uh, a lot of people didn't know was coming. They were frustrated it happened after they'd had that meeting, the photo that was tweeted out by Anthony House, father and others. Mm-hmm. But also there were people who might have signed that letter, didn't know about the letter, went back to their riding where this is a big issue and got yelled at because they hadn't signed a letter calling for a ceasefire. So there's the potential for these sorts of flare-ups if, if the process is Yeah, and, and that's because it's not led officially. Um, you know, I like the fact that, you know, Jewish, Muslim, and Arab liberal MPs met and had a thoughtful conversation and a respectful conversation about this. Fred is exactly right. You cannot compare the liberal, conservative, NDP caucuses as apples to apples. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very, very different. But there's another aspect of this. I mentioned with Ken McDonald about how that there was no public kind of humiliation of him right now. A few weeks ago, there was a protest around the Hill, uh, pro-family, anti-LGBTQ, and a memo went out from the conservative leader's office saying, don't say anything about that to, their, to the conservative MPs. That's not going to fly with the Liberal caucus. It's just not going to work on something like this. And I think the best way is, if you look at it, the Liberal caucus is really reflective of Canadians right now. I think there's a lot of people that are in, have the same sort of views. And if, I think if we've learned anything over the last couple of weeks is on this issue, and it's always been thus, and I can tell you as someone who's done panels for about 15 years, this is not a topic I really enjoy because you need experts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Language is really precise on this, and it should be left to diplomats and experienced individuals. Well, look, and, and don't take this the wrong way, but that's why people like you guys disappeared from this show in the early days of the war. Like, like. Yeah. I'm an Irish Catholic kid from St. John's. Like, uh, you know, we needed people who, with real experience on this uh, to help us through it. Uh, but look, it's good to have you back. Uh, we're out of time now. I want to thank Fred Delory, Greg McEachern, and Susan Delacourt. Uh, happy Friday. Enjoy your weekend, gang. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.